0: ted audio collective
1: canva presents stories to keep you up at night it was an ordinary work day until
0: the singapore presentation is at 3 a.m the office was shocked (laughs) that's when we sleep maya made it less scary with canva I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime.
1: Record and present anytime with Canva presentations at Canva.com. Designed for work.
0: This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive.
2: Hello, everyone. You're listening to After Hours. I'm Felix. I'm here. Did you see the first snow the other day? I did. It was spectacular.
1: Yeah. At this time of year, the first snow is great. You know, talk to me in March. It's a different question.
2: <laughs> but I am still a sucker for that first snow, and I'm still a sucker for winter. I was actually thinking about that there are some experiences in your life. You've seen it so many times. And then, say, The lights we talked about around the holidays with Hanukkah now and the Christmas lights everywhere. Yeah. So nice that there are these things in our lives that don't get old, that always feel special. Absolutely. And we have topics. What did you bring today? We have this tradition of sometimes focusing on one company.
1: And there's a company that I think we've never really talked about that's super fascinating, which is JP
2: Morgan. I think you're right. We never talked about it.
1: And we've gone through this crazy year in banking, but it's a useful juncture to step back and talk a little bit about JP Morgan, I think. Wonderful. And what did you
2: bring, Felix? We have new data on the people who go to college. And I wanted to talk to you about what did we learn, what's interesting, What's perhaps even very different from the typical image that we have who's a college student? Fantastic. That sounds great. So, me here, JP Morgan.
1: Yeah, sometimes there's these business stories that happen in plain sight and you don't even realize they're happening. Uh-huh. And I think JP Morgan over the last decade is one such story. It's just this remarkable story of growth and Market value appreciation and a CEO who has done it in kind of an interesting way. So, just a couple of quick facts. By far, JP Morgan is now the most successful bank in the world. It is certainly the largest in the US. It's pulled away from its comparable kind of money center bank alternatives, which would be Bank America, Wells Fargo, and Citi in a really staggering way. It's got about $4 trillion in assets. It is making money. Hand over fist. It has <laughs> yeah. a successful mammoth branch operation, which you would normally traditionally associate with banking, the deposit taking, loan making yeah. side of the business. It has a mammoth investment commercial bank, which has risen in the league tables and is now rivaling Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley and is in the same breath all the time. And then it has that thing that everybody wants, which is <laughs> a wealth management business that <laughs> yes. is kind of humming along too. So it is banging and then it's led by a guy jamie diamond who has been in the job for 17 years yeah that's remarkable he's 67 now and is actually upended a lot of things we think about ceo tenure and all of this felix in fundamentally an industry that is not sexy (laughs) highly competitive commodified and i'm curious
2: what you make of this Yeah, it is a wonderful story. It's such a good opportunity for us to think about size. And when size is a great thing and when size is maybe problematic in one way or the other. And maybe this is just me, but the very first thing that comes to mind is, of course, economies of scale. So this notion that banking has become very fixed cost intensive. Yeah, JP Morgan will spend 14 billion dollars. That's billion with a B on information technology alone per year. Yeah. yeah, It's just huge. It's true for most of the big banks. They play a game where fixed costs really matter in IT, in marketing, in other aspects. And as a result, there are bigger and bigger advantages to be big. I give you some numbers just to anchor us. If you look at the late 1980s and you say it's most extreme for Bank of America, and you ask if they grow by 10% in the late 1980s, what happens to their costs? And the answer is their costs go up by about 9%. So there's a little bit of an advantage, but it's not really all that big. And then you look 20, 25 years later and you ask, okay, so now what if Bank of America grows by 10%? What happens to their costs? And the answer is their costs go up by a single percent. Right, So the economies of scale have become so much bigger. then of course, what you get as a result is this bifurcation where we have the really, really, really big banks where it's all about economies of scale and then mid-sized banks where we sometimes yeah. have some trouble in the market and then many smaller regional banks that compete very differently.
1: Yeah. I think that's exactly right. The whole scale story is amazing. And he's marshaled it. And he's pulled away from the other folks who could have done it. So five, seven years ago, City, Bank of America, and Wells Fargo were comparable and sometimes bigger on some dimensions. Mm-hmm. And he has just figured out how to really just go gangbusters in many of these different pieces of the puzzle and then reap all those economies of scale. I think the second part of it that strikes me is there's the scale issue, but then there's also this ability for them to be differentiated brands, which I think is also super interesting. <laughs> mm-hmm. I think there is this story about how Chase is a Main Street name and JP Morgan is an elite Wall Street name. Yeah. And they've been able to yoke them together and both sides of it like it. Yeah. And by the way, when Chase was put together with JP Morgan, this is a series of mergers going back 20 years ago, people thought it would never work. Mm-hmm. And yet, they have managed to preserve the elite status for the wealth management business and the investment banking business with this J.P. Morgan name and then the mass market of Chase. And then people can migrate upwards. And so there's an amazing kind of brand-building story there that I think is fantastic. Yeah. And then the other thing I wanted to just get your reactions to is there's also a regulatory and capital story about banking. Because in many ways, Felix, 10 years ago, people thought, the big banks would get hammered by regulation. Mm-hmm. They would suffer because they would have all these additional rules. And by the way, Jamie Dimon said they would suffer because of all these suffocating rules. Yeah, yeah. And what he's figured out is how to play the regulatory and capital game. So there have been these transformative moments where regulators need him. Obviously, Bear Stearns, Washington Mutual, now First Republic. And so there are these moments where he's able to use his position with capital and position with regulators to get these transactions that are really remarkable and then transform the businesses overnight. Sometimes you feel like he's getting dragged into them, but they happen on terms that are spectacular. Mm -hmm. So I think that's the other thing. There's this marketing story here and a regulatory story here that I think is also kind of amazing.
2: Yeah, the regulatory story I find particularly interesting at first glance, of course, regulation is just yet another fixed cost right. that benefits you if you're relatively larger, that matters a little less. We've seen this now everywhere, right? So in big tech, in big banking, in big food, in big ag, Right. ultimately these regulatory efforts to constrain the size of companies often have the opposite effect because exactly. if I slap additional fixed costs on the business, you know, the big guys are going to grow. At The size that they have right now, one of the angles that I find so interesting, and I think it played some role in the First Republic takeover, is when you think about how insurance works on the retail side, Mm -hmm. where we have the FDIC, we think of our deposits as insured, but it's not as though FDIC is really an insurance company. Mm -hmm. They will turn around and they will slap whatever costs we get as a result of banking mayhem they will ask the big banks to pay for it because jp morgan is so big they will bear roughly 15 percent of that cost right that means now not only are you a really big bank but some of the externalities (laughs) that come from instability in the banking sector are now internalized in some sort
1: that's fascinating and
2: then in competition with other banks of course That gives you an edge in the sense that you think, okay, so I'm going to pay 15% of the $30 billion anyway, or I might just make the problem go away by buying First Republic. So there's something completely fascinating when we think about instability in particular markets as externalities, and then as firms become really, really big they are sort of the market and as a result these externalities then show up in interesting competitive advantages
1: and then also gives them incredible bargaining power with respect to the regulators that's because right because it is yeah. a joint decision and that's the other story here which is banking more broadly it is an industry which is fundamentally commoditized yeah and there are <laughs> probably too many banks in the united states and there are probably some inefficiently small ones and so It is all the more, in a way, remarkable. And in a sense, Felix, I thought to myself, he's got a really old playbook, in a way. Mm -hmm, It's not
2: mm -hmm, a new playbook. It's like a very traditional old playbook. Yeah, he's done it for the entire time of his professional career. The same move over and over and over again. But it works. And it works. And that's the other piece of it that I think is amazing. Kind of an amazing
1: career. Started out very young and had a remarkable set of opportunities under Sandy Weil. But it has also made me rethink CEO tenure. I, in general, think past 10 years, even if you're good, it's a bad idea. And he really blossomed late, actually, as a CEO of JPMorgan Chase. Mm -hmm. It's really been the last seven or eight years that he's really hit his stride. Now, of course, part of that reflects things he did in his first 10 years. He's in year (laughs) 17 now. Right, that's right. But I don't know. It's made me really rethink whether CEOs should actually just leave after 10 years. Because if you're doing well and you're of the right age, you could have a second innings that is spectacular. Yeah, And I don't know if he's exceptional or if we just don't allow people enough rope to excel in that way.
2: So that's the other piece of that I think is interesting. I think this is such an interesting observation. I wonder how much this is specific to banking. And when I look across industries and I look at, how much variation in profitability do we have in all of these different industries and different segments? Banking is way at the bottom. So the most successful bank, not that different from banks that are not so successful. In the data that I've looked at, only utilities are worse because utilities are rate regulated and then of course you get very little variation. But I think you can then start thinking about How do you compete under those sort of circumstances? So, there's a sense that you're commoditized or not that big differences. And then I think something that just many people underestimate is what's the quality of execution? Yeah, totally. How good are you to have the trains run on time? And one of my favorite examples is they take over First Republic. And they go into the situation in a way that is quite comfortable. If you look at their capital reserve ratio, it's actually more generous than what they need to have. Yeah. And then you look at the numbers, how they change. And within an incredibly short period of time, they're at exactly the capital reserve ratio that they had previous to the deal. Yeah. There's this ability to really steer the boat almost millimeter by millimeter exactly where you want to be. We sometimes look down a little bit on execution. We say, oh, you know, it's nothing new. He's done it so many times. I agree. But this is, in particular in this industrial environment, is so incredibly valuable.
1: I totally agree. And I think this is, again, comes back to this idea. It's a mature, commoditized industry. It's all about execution. And they do it remarkably well. And by the way, it also goes back, He had this experience going back to the early 2000s with Bank One, where he went to Bank One to do this. Mm -hmm. It was a mess. Yeah, And go organize it and just get it to execute. Again, these are very old playbooks, but they're really good playbooks. (laughs) And in a world where industries mature, and that can be true in tech and can be in a lot of things, the premium shifts and it shifts to execution and it shifts to discipline and it shifts to thinking about risk in really thoughtful ways. And he figured that out in banking and mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. he just drove it home. But I think the lessons are broader in many ways. One thing that one always wonders about with these long-term CEOs is who becomes the next CEO? Because the problem it can create for the next person is actually quite large. It can be massive. Because the shoes to fill are so large. So I guess that's the one caveat on this story, which is the next leg of this story is to see how he manages that transition and how the successor is able to fulfill that mission. I mean, in many ways, the legacy of a CEO is best understood at how the next person does in the job. Is he setting someone up for success in the next job? So that, I think, is the next piece to watch.
2: Yeah. And that makes me a little optimistic already when I think about the people he appointed to run the really large divisions. I agree. Oh, my God super impressive absolutely and so (laughs) who knows maybe if after hours is still around in five years (laughs) we might return and say look just like we predicted (gasps) amazing success story (laughs) and you can
1: imagine that if it isn't we won't
2: so yeah we won't talk about it yes
0: (laughs) (laughs) you're growing a business and you can't afford to slow down It feels just right when I'm hitting my running trail that's just out behind my house. You now can take your daily run in the better than ever Go 16. You can visit
1: brooksrunning.com to learn more. Okay, so as I referenced, in some ways, Jamie Diamond is a little bit of a late bloomer second half of his CEO (laughs) tenure
2: was quite remarkable. You want to talk a little bit about data on college students? (laughs) It's definitely on the theme of late bloomers. Every now and then you see a piece of data that just goes so against the grain, so against my expectations. And I love that when there's just this little bit of reality that you always took to be in a particular fashion, then it turns out you're totally wrong. So in college, my big discovery is roughly 20% of people who complete college degrees are what you might call late bloomers. Mm-hmm. They finish their degrees in their 30s, 40s, 50s. That's crazy, right? Yeah, it's so interesting. Yeah, and you think about college students, of course, we all think the 20-year-old and then by 22, 23, you're out in the workforce. And Not true. Yeah. So a very different path to college and then also a very different path after college. What do you make of it? What does it tell us? There are so many things
1: about this research and this story that I love. The first is our imagination is so clouded, especially when it comes to higher education, by the idea of elite universities and what Mm -hmm. they do. Yeah, And it's so unrepresentative (laughs) of what happens in higher education broadly. And so... It is just stunning that, in fact, one-fifth of all these folks are late bloomers. And then a lot of things that we thought about college education, then we have to rethink. Mm -hmm. So it turns out once you think hard about these 20%, the returns to college education more generally are considerably higher then we would have thought them to be otherwise, which is just another way of saying what we observe as the returns to college education is a mix of what it is for young people and these late bloomers. Once you isolate the young people and you think hard about the young people, the returns to college education are even higher than we thought they were. So look underneath the hood. You start to see things that you don't see otherwise. And then the second piece that I loved was these late bloomers are typically from groups that have been marginalized in some ways. They're more likely to be racial minorities. They're more likely to be women. They're likely to be groups who haven't been at the core of the college experience, certainly not 20, 30 years ago. So now that also puts a different light on what these late bloomers are, which is people who are really striving to educate themselves and really striving to invest in themselves later in life. Obviously, we're in the education business, so we shouldn't just be talking our own book. But that is inspirational and fantastic Yeah, just to see these people and have one realize how
2: large a chunk of the economy they really are. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. One of the really interesting observations was the wage profiles. So when you compare late bloomers to people who went to college earlier in their life, late bloomers are exceptional in that they make more money than people who don't have a college education. So they're sort of the best compensated among the group of people who don't have a college degree. Right. And then they get this really nice bump that, oh my God, yes, now you have a college degree. Of course, we're going to pay you much better. But the bump is actually not quite as big as the bump that the younger people receive. Right. and so. That automatically makes me think about a whole range of things. The first is, obviously, these are late bloomers at some point in time close to getting a college education. Could we move it up a little bit? Right. Because that would have incredible financial consequences if instead of you go in your mid-40s, maybe we can somehow do something so that you go in your late 30s or something like this. The second is, if you then think about someone in their mid-40s, and perhaps they have a family, perhaps they have kids, I think one way we're let down by this image of the young college student is that the kinds of support, the kinds of systems, the way you would build a university, the services that it would provide, I'm sure they're totally different if you cater to a group of older adults as opposed to very young people in college and so in various ways we can think about the timing we can think about the support that these people get but all in all it's just incredibly encouraging and i'm just enthusiastic about this idea that someone was typically in the workforce for 10 15 20 years and then you say guess what now I'm getting a college degree. I think that's really amazing to
1: me. And I think a lot of that is happening, Felix, but it's happening at institutions that we don't typically think about. For example, Arizona State or Southern New Hampshire. These are universities that are serving these populations, doing amazing things, but not in the limelight of these elite institutions. It does beg the question, frankly, what elite institutions should be doing in this space? Because maybe there is stuff that we could be doing. You know, at HBS, we do some of that, obviously. But you really wonder, what if we thought about this population more seriously? What if we catered to them better? Mm -hmm. What if we catered to them earlier, to your point? yeah. I guess the other piece of the story that I think is fantastic, Felix, is I think these so-called late bloomers, they don't really get the attention they deserve. And I'm not just talking about education. I just feel like this is a group of people who don't have the primacy in our society that they should. Yeah, We tend to like young, bright things and young, bright things are fantastic and I get that. But I think the other piece of the story that strikes me is there are late bloomers everywhere. Mm-hmm. We're having to be seeing it in this education data, but I wonder about it as a broader phenomenon, which is we don't highlight these people enough. I don't think we think about them enough. I don't think we think to your point, how to help them enough. Because there's so much attention on the young, and by the way, there's quite a bit of attention on the old, mm-hmm. but it's this middle layer, which we're not organizing ourselves around, it seems to me, at
2: least. Yeah. Do you think it's a broader phenomenon than just in this education data? I think it's particularly important what you just said. The other sector, to your question, that comes to mind is where, for the longest time, I had totally the wrong vision, is entrepreneurship entrepreneurship is often sold as a young person's game and then you look at the data the quality of the data matters a little bit because many people start companies not with an intention of really growing the company in any meaningful way right you start a restaurant and that's a great family business but you're not really building a chain or anything like this but if you Look at the most successful entrepreneurs, the ones out in the tail, say the 1% best entrepreneurial ventures or the 0.1%. What you see is the average person is 45 years old. Yeah, And then if you think of sort of the frontier, which is often technology, so either technology or companies with patents that do really well, there the founder is typically close to 50 years old when they start and so that's another area where having the wrong impression then leads to all kinds of problems i see it often in students at hbs where they think oh my god i have to start a business soon after graduation right. because young people start good comp- no actually <laughs> the 20 year olds have the smallest chances of success right but just to be clear
1: It may be true that it is a good idea to start a business when you're young, but you should understand that your horizon should probably be 30 to 40 years because they will fail and then they will succeed (laughs) and you have to kind of do it again and again and again. So I actually think it's both true that you shouldn't think you have to start a business when you're very young, but it is also true that the real story here to me is we should lengthen our horizons. Yeah, There are young people who have like a 10-year horizon and- It just feels so wrong to have a 10-year horizon. And I came across this, honestly, this semester a fair amount, more than I expected, Felix, which is I want to be retired in 20 years.
2: Oh, (laughs) And
1: I react pretty negatively towards that. But this data also makes me react negatively towards it, which is just like, really? People hit their stride at that time. And Mm -hmm. there are second and third legs to this that are fantastic. And actually, that's more likely to be true than one time out. And you win and more rewarding ultimately
2: as well. This question, should you aspire to be a serial entrepreneur? And then obviously at the beginning, you're not going to be very good and eventually you get better at it. So the chances of a 50-year-old to hit it out of the park are roughly double of the chances of a 30-year-old. Or should you maybe go into a traditional industry so say (laughs) should you be in a bank and then at some point in time venture out from there we know from the data that industry experience matters dramatically so what's the secret to success of these older people they have industry experience and the part that i think we don't know from the research but it's a really interesting thing to think about is What kind of industry experience do you get if you're a serial entrepreneur in, say, media versus if you work for a large media company or a large bank for a couple of years and then you jump ship? And I wouldn't be surprised if this was really industry specific, how much you can learn. But that's probably the best way to think about it. You know, what do you need to have in order to be a successful entrepreneur? You need industry experience. What's the best way to get to the frontier of what the industry does as quickly as you possibly can? Maybe that's in a series of startups. Maybe that's in a large company. But I think the reason why large
1: companies can be powerful
2: is... Ultimately, you're trying to figure out where
1: the real friction and the real pain points are. Yeah. And it's hard to figure that out. And especially in complex industries like banking, it's actually not that easy to figure it out. So that is the logic for why industry experience, because then you figure out the pain points, you figure out the frictions, and then you're able to target them. Yeah. And of course, the offsetting effect is that in that process of being in large companies, do you somehow lose your risk-taking or your outsider perspective that is also what you need so the trade-off seems to be (laughs) you go into industry to learn those frictions and to really understand industries deeply which i think young people today underestimate pretty dramatically so but they do have a point which is the longer you stay in those places they change who you are and they change your preferences and then maybe you're not able to leave that feels like the trade-off to me
2: roughly i think that's exactly right and that's probably two interesting angles. I think the first is, of course, a lot depends on do we think large companies are innovative or not? If you are in a large company and you never see anything innovative for 20 years, yeah, maybe the chances that you have a great new idea, those chances are not so fantastic. But we know from the data that we way, way, way underestimate the degree to which big, large corporations are innovative, have interesting projects, are pushing the boundaries. And we know from lots of entrepreneurial stories that very often they suggested a particular innovation project inside the large corporate. The large corporate wasn't interested. And then guess what? You jump off and you build your own business. So that's, I think, one thing to think about. The second thing to think about is early in your career, the set of constraints that you have, say financing constraints those are super severe, very hard to overcome. As you become a successful professional, as you have a larger network, as you maybe have worked with funders over time, those constraints shift. And so to the extent that for the young person, funding is one of the absolute biggest problems. Maybe recognizing talent is a really huge problem. There's good reason to believe that for someone older, these constraints are perhaps less important. And so that gives you a degree of freedom that you don't have early on.
1: I would disagree with your second point and agree with your first one. Okay. On the constraints point, I think that sounds right, but for what happens in the interim, which is life. Life happens and then sometimes you start to feel constraints Mm. that you may not have felt before. So That can be a mortgage or family or whatever it is. But I think the footloose and fancy-free stage of your life is a time when you're willing to do things that maybe you have less of an ability to do later. But I take your general point, Felix, which is I think we've come to the point where we dramatically overestimate the need to be young when you take those risks. And the general point seems to me to be that The pendulum should shift backwards so that we understand that risk-taking, whether it's getting a college degree, which is a big risk for a lot of people (laughs) in their 30s and 40s, -hmm. or starting a business, that can happen later in life. And it may happen optimally later in life for a whole bunch of people that we don't think enough about and we don't broadcast enough. So I think Mm -hmm. that certainly is true. Yeah. All right. So Felix, naturally, I have to ask, what would you want to be a late bloomer in?
2: (laughs) (laughs) So I always thought about less starting a business but probably other careers go ahead i had an ambition to think about a career of a musician at some point in time yes that never really happened so that might be something that I would aspire to. What about you?
1: If Le Bernardin called me up and said they wanted a sous chef, <laughs> I would drop everything and go.
2: Oh, be careful what you wish for. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs>
1: All right. Good. So here to the late bloomers, Jamie Diamond among them. Felix, recommendations.
2: My recommendation is a documentary called American Symphony. And it's about a project or an idea of a musician, John Batiste. I think he's probably best known for having been the band leader on The Late Show for a very long period of time. Yeah, Stephen Colbert's show. Exactly. He's fantastic. And then he had a super, super successful album that won many, many Grammys. And the American Symphony project that the documentary starts out with is the idea... If someone were to invent the symphony today, what would it look like? And everything from who are the musicians, what are the instruments, what kind of music do they play? And so the documentary is about how he's working on this project and you get to see snippets of that symphony. But then the documentary is also about the relationship with his wife and what that relationship is like. Hmm. I loved it because it was such a powerful reminder how life can be incredibly sweet and joyous and uplifting and just impossibly hard at one at the same time. Yeah. And so we get to see their experience and we get to see how they live through. These very happy and these very sad times at one and the same time. So, American Symphony, it's a documentary that streams on Netflix.
1: That sounds fantastic. I have to say, I'm just taking a look now. The song he composed for Colbert is just a great theme song, by the way. Yeah. It does strike me, Felix, that if the question is, if someone were to invent the symphony today... Aren't you the right person to answer that question as a late bloomer?
2: I wish. Yeah, very late bloomer. So ask me in 10 years.
1: Yeah. And you'll figure out the answer to that. That was a great suggestion. Yeah. What do you have for us, Mir? Well, first, I just need to channel Peter Linane, our sound engineer, because I had the opportunity to spend some time with him on a separate project earlier this week. Mm-hmm. And he reminded me of a long time ago recommendation, I think from Young Me, but the new season is out of Slow Horses on apple tv
2: oh i missed that
1: and thanks to peter i caught up and let me tell you i've only seen the first three episodes but it's great fantastic season two i thought was a bit of a miss season one was amazing but season three is great certainly the first three episodes are
2: and can we stream the entire season it's coming out every wednesday i think salami tactics you know i really dislike that (laughs) i think it's terrible (laughs) Don't give me this going back 20 years, every Tuesday, every Wednesday, you serve a little bit. That is ridiculous to me. (laughs) If I thought creatively about ways to cheapen and worsen the customer experience, that will be the top of my list. I don't know. I'm a little bit okay
1: with it because binging is not super healthy for me, I can't control myself, <laughs> Okay, and so you end up binging and it's like five episodes in a night,
2: there is a little bit more enjoyment from the delay. So I'm going to take the other side of that. Let me counter. I was in a workshop once with one of the writers who wrote for The Office, uh-huh. and this was right at the time when binging became possible and when we all started doing it, and I asked him, what's the effect on how you write? And he says, oh, it's entirely different if you see something once a week, the number of characters that you can introduce, the complexity of the stories, yeah, that's it's very limited because people don't remember what they had for lunch yesterday. How will they remember the fifth character in a particular show? Yeah. And I feel we go back to an earlier time and we hear with A little more self-control, maybe? (laughs) (laughs) That's the story of my life.
0: Speaking of
1: self-control, my real recommendation is The Upstairs Delicatessen, which is a new book by Dwight Garner, who's an author who I've recommended before. Garner's Quotations is this lovely book of quotations that he put out. It's called A Common Book. But in Upstairs Delicatessen, he speaks about a life without self-control. And in particular, with respect to reading and eating. So he's a voracious reader, and he's a voracious eater, and he's got appetites. (laughs) And those appetites are really just about those two things. It's a kind of memoir, but it's organized in this weird way. There's a section of the book called breakfast, and then lunch, and then dinner, Mm. and then sleeping, and then just kind of like these weird... Pieces, But he's knitting together his culinary appetites with his intellectual appetites. Huh. So he's talking about preparing a meal and eating a meal, but then he's talking about how Iris Murdoch describes eating and food and all <laughs> this kind of stuff. Okay, And you'd think, how could this work? Yeah. But he's such a likable companion. He's just the kind of guy when you're reading him you want to spend more time with the guy okay and so not
2: a lot of self-control there
1: but (laughs) i'm a huge fan of dwight garner and the upstairs delicatessen
2: wonderful and this is it for tonight thank you everyone for listening this was after hours from the ted audio collective